have your Bible, you can open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what he says here. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the very image of God for we are not proclaiming ourselves but Jesus Christ as lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake for God who said let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you will, just hold your place there, because I'm going to read the next part of that a little bit later in the sermon. Uh, I am so encouraged by this word in the text. And the reason is because Paul says so many things in that 2 Corinthians 4 passage. Let me ask you a question. What, what, comes, what picture comes to mind when you think of strength? Maybe you think of a mom who battled cancer. And made it through. Or maybe she didn't. But to the very end, she kept her faith in Jesus. Or maybe you think of another parent who went through some hard times and lost a job and just hung in there and God faithfully provided. Or maybe you think of a sibling who is just one of the strongest people that you know. When I was a little kid, I loved superheroes. And I loved superheroes because of their strength. I loved them because they all, first of all, they all look buff and chiseled. And that's how I imagined myself to be <laughs> at six years old. And I loved the, I was attracted to their power, uh, especially male, male hero figures. And that's what I wanted to be. And when I went to Sunday school, I can promise you, I was the worst kid that Sunday school has ever had. I got kicked out of Sunday school all the time for fighting, for uh, doing things I shouldn't have been doing. I won't say the things I shouldn't have done, but, uh, but they had a desk uh, at Faith Baptist Church in Goosen, Virginia, outside of the classroom that was in the hall, and it was called Jeff's desk. <laughs> and, uh, and I hated God. I hated church. And I vowed that when I grew up, I would never ever go to church. What an irony. God has such a great sense of humor. But the one story in the Old Testament that I really loved was the story of Samson. I love that story because to me, he was just an Israelite superhero. And as I've gotten older, as I shared with you last week, I've come to realize, uh, as we said last week, that the intended lesson of the author of Judges is not what little kids might take away from it. He is not an admirable figure. Samson is actually the epitome of human weakness. We learn in chapter 16 that if the spirit of the Lord departs him, he would be as weak, he says, as any other man. What does that mean? D despite the movies that you've seen, folks, he doesn't look like Chris Hemsworth. Like he doesn't look like Thor. He just looks like any other guy you would see. And apart from the anointing of the Spirit of the Lord, he doesn't have any 
power at all. He actually is a picture, a type of the New Testament believer who is utterly in of themselves without power. But when the Spirit of God comes upon him, he has great power. Samson is the very picture also of a person consumed by their own desires and driven by their lusts. His preferences for foreign women eventually become his undoing, as we'll see next week. Samson is also the personification of foolishness. As we learned last week, even when the Spirit comes upon him in power, it is always not, it's never in light of him. It's always despite him. It's always in spite of him, in spite of the fact that he's a prankster and he's really kind of a fool. And so today we're actually going to contrast, we're going to take a little excursion and we're going to contrast Samson's life in the Old Testament with the New Testament believer and what the Bible says God's spirit has anointed and empowered us for. We'll talk about three things, Jesus being the fulfillment of everything All the potential that was in Samson, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And God has poured his spirit out on New Testament believers in this New Testament era. God has poured the Holy Spirit out on every single believer in a new and shocking way. And God's spirit enables us to do something. Let's look at those points together. Number one, all of Samson's potential is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I would say this is true about every Old Testament character. Samson, like so many other heroes of the faith, is a a mere foreshadowing, a type of God's son who would ultimately fulfill all that those flawed figures pointed to, including David himself. And more than a thousand years after the angelic visit to Samson's mother, another angel announced to a virgin a similar prediction. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, which means Yahweh is our salvation. While the first angel told Samson's parents that he would begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines, from the strongholds of the Philistines, this new promise a thousand years later to this little girl named Mary is that Jesus, in Matthew 1.21, will save his people from their sins. And even though Samson dies, taking out 3,000 of of his enemies, the enemies of Israel, which is a very good thing, even though it cost him greatly his own life, Jesus, by contrast, defeats sin, death, and hell, our greatest enemies. Whereas Samson ruled over 20 years with kind of mixed results, Jesus inaugurated a kingdom that cannot be shaken and cannot be moved. And so this brings us to our second point. Number two, God has poured out his spirit on all people. He's poured it out on every ethnicity, every nation under heaven and on the earth, every gender, the two that there are, male and female, and every person from every conceivable social status, rich, poor, and everything in between. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, Acts chapter 2 tells us. Jesus has done what no other leader in the world, or in Israel's history, could ever do. He has ransomed our very lives from sin, as we heard so powerfully in those 13 testimonies. Wasn't that powerful? By the way, I just want to say this. I, I, listen, we boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ, but I brag about you 
because you parents and grandparents are very actively leading your children to the gospel of the cross. And you heard it today. You heard it from little kids and teenagers and adults. You heard the same message of what the gospel is. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus did what no other world leader or no other Israeli king could ever do. He led us to salvation. He saved us from our sin. Now, in John chapter 3, Jesus has a very interesting conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is one of the teachers of Israel, meaning he's a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And so you can often find Nicodemus teaching on the Temple Mount under what is called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. And it's just this covered porch where the rabbis would gather and teach all their Talmudim. The Hebrew word Talmudim just means disciples, right? So they would gather all their Talmudim around them, and they would teach them uh, the truths from the Torah, from the Tanakh, from the Torah, and the Nebaim, and the Ketubim, or the, what we would call the Old Testament, their Bible. And so he is one of the prominent teachers of Israel, and he has heard Jesus say something in Solomon's portico, and he just wants clarification, so he comes in clandestine fashion. He comes under the cover of night and he finds Jesus and he says, teacher, first of all, you're such a good teacher. Like, I mean, we're all teachers here, but you're, you're, you're something else. And Jesus doesn't even respond to his initial <laughs> statement. Jesus says, uh, Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, what? What a conversation starter. Now, understand, Nicodemus does not have any framework. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. This is why he gets so literal. He says, a person has to go back through the birth canal? I mean, a person has to do that again? And Jesus said, come on, man. You know, he says, listen, you are Israel's teacher, and you don't even understand the first principle of the kingdom of God. I mean, I'm talking to you about spiritual things, but I'm trying to put it in earthly language. And if you can't even understand what I'm trying to say in the earthly terms I'm putting in, how in the world will I speak to you of heavenly things? Nicodemus, is, his attention is wrapped. He can't take his eyes off Jesus because he is hearing something that he's never heard before. In all the years of his schooling and training and seminary, he's never heard. And this is how Jesus explains it. John 3, 14 through 21, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. He means on the cross so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world like this. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but they would have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Listen, Anyone who believes in the Son is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe stands condemned already. And Jesus says, and so this is what happened. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does what is evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So after Jesus ascends to heaven, 
Like no one knows at this time what Jesus is talking about. John is eavesdropping on this, which is the reason why he can record it later in the gospel of John. But it isn't until Jesus raises from the dead and ascends through a cloud to the throne of heaven that people get it. They realize what he was talking about. Their only frame of reference is with guys like Samson or Samuel or David and the prophets and the kings. In their Bible, the Spirit of God only comes upon certain individuals at certain times to accomplish particular purposes. And now, the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all flesh, all ethnicities, male and female, everyone from every walk of life, every social status. The Holy Spirit is now being poured out on all flesh, on every person. And on the day of Pentecost, when believers were gathered together in prayer and waiting for God, suddenly they hear the sound like a tornado, like a hurricane blowing through town, through their house. And then they feel this rush of power come upon them and enter them. And they see a sign of flames above everyone's head that just look like flaming tongues of fire. Signifying that God is bringing the once broken people of the world back together into one family on earth who all speak the same spiritual language of grace. Amen? And then Peter stands up and people are thinking, you people are drunk. Clearly, you've kind of been hitting the bottle at nine o'clock in the morning. And Peter has to stand up and say, no, 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 we are not drunk. Listen. Listen to the words of the prophet Joel. This is in your Bible. He says, and it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. And I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. And then the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says in verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was attested to you all by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up to according to the determined plan and foreknowledge of God, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not even possible for death to hold him in the ground. <laughs> Unlike Samson and other Old Testament leaders, the regenerating presence of the Holy Spirit has now been poured out on all who name Christ as Lord. Jesus was crucified for our sins, but defeated our greatest enemy, death and the grave. And now he has reigned, he has poured out the Holy Spirit on all of those who believe. Believer, you have the presence of God dwelling in you right now. Whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not, if you're a believer in Jesus and you name Christ as Lord, the God of the universe, His Spirit has invaded your life with transforming presence. So what does that mean for the believer? Number three, God's Spirit enables us then, the believer, to live in resurrection power. 
Of course, we think of resurrection as something at the end of the age when we die and Christ calls us out of the grave. We'll come back and get brand new resurrected bodies that are impervious to sin and temptation and sickness. Wouldn't that be great? I think that would be fantastic. But actually what the New Testament teaches is that the resurrection power of Jesus has started already in the life of the believer and it coincides, it cohabits this fleshly, broken, sinful body. I want to show it to you. Samson's strength was an enhancement of his normal physical power so that he could begin the project of ridding the world of the Philistine scourge. Now, just so you know, you can make a note. Historically, the Philistines were totally wiped out with David. They were totally pushed back. And by the time later in history, Nebuchadnezzar comes down to attack Judah and Jerusalem, he commits genocide. He actually destroys them as a people. So after about the 500s BC, you won't see the Philistines anymore. And today, they're excavating the five Philistine cities on the coast, and they're finding all of their bones. They're finding hundreds of their skeletons just uh, just buried in these graves. And so the Philistines, at some point, will be gone. Samson begins the project of ridding Israel from Philistine oppression. But as we said, Jesus, by contrast, has now saved us all, actually, from a much graver threat, our own sin and our own flesh. And so the first thing we learn here is that we are empowered to make the good confession. What is the the believer enabled to do? To confess rightly. Every person that you heard this morning who stepped up to that tank and you heard the video... You heard the audio from the video. They were able to make the right confession because the Spirit had given them the ability to make that confession. I want to read this to you in 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Let's go back to that passage now. Let's pick it up with verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, now we have this treasure, this spectacular salvation, this resurrection power, the Spirit of the Lord in our lives. We have that treasure, the gospel, in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be demonstrated to be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who uh, are We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore we speak. Notice the order. The Holy Spirit is poured out into our lives. We have this treasure, the treasure of God's spirit dwelling in us And what does the Spirit enable us to do? To speak. To make the right confession. To confess that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. He's God the Son and the Son of God. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, no one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can make that the confession of their life except by means of the Holy Spirit. The second thing the Spirit of God enables us to do is He enables us with godly desires. When the Spirit comes into a person's life and regenerates them from the inside out, he begins to give them God's desires for life. And of course, we 
already still retained our desires, the things that our flesh desires. We learned this in Galatians 5, 16 through 17. Paul says this, I say then walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want to do. What is he saying here? You and I have this war going on in us. In a very real sense, the Christian is kind of the happiest, most joyous person in the world, but also uh, the, the, the person who is to be most pitied in a sense. What do I mean by that? Because we have this war. There is a war going on in the world around us, in, in the culture, right? The, the culture, they're tearing each other apart. They're also attacking us for our beliefs and our values. But then in addition to fighting that war, we also have to fight this war within. We have a war raging on the inside of us between our fleshly nature and this regenerate spirit that the Holy Spirit has put in us that is brand new, that is born again. And Paul says these two natures inhabit us and they war with each other. They, they both desire what is contrary to the other. Have you ever wondered why you just had such a sinful thought right after devotions? <laughs> you just had the, I did this the other day, I will confess. I just had the best devotional time in the morning and I was just whistling while I worked uh, around the yard and I put a bunch of stuff in the van and I drove it out to the dump and threw it in um, uh, the wrong spot at the dump, and a, and, a, and a young man in a truck drove up to me, and he was very animated. He said, is there a reason why you didn't put that in the right place? I said, oh, sorry, I didn't know. I, I didn't know I put it in the wrong place. He goes, well, you did. And I said, man, shut up. <laughs> Talking to me like that? You know, my face said everything to him that I was thinking. And I got in the van, and I have to tell you, I, I was so convicted. I was like, here I was. I had the best devotional time in my life this morning. And I walked over here and popped off at this guy. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking very sinful thoughts about punching him in his face. <laughs> How can I do that? How is that possible that those two instincts and those two desires live in me at the same time? I want to be like Jesus. I want my life to conform to Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I have this fleshly nature that's fighting me but that I have to take control over. I have to fight. Paul calls it the good fight. You know, that's a good fight. What's the best fight? Well, it's the one you know you're going to win. If you came into a fight and you knew you were guaranteed to win, like it was one of those WWE wrestling matches. <laughs> like it's all theaters. This thing is fixed. Somebody's walking out here and we already knew who it is that's going to be the winner. And that's how it is in the Christian life. Yes, it is a fight. Yes, I'm going to backflip off the top turnbuckle. I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to bruise myself in this fight. But it's a good fight because Jesus wins for the believer. So when you come to faith in Jesus, you don't just get a change of status. That's one of the best things about salvation you could ever hear. Jesus changes your legal status to forgiven versus guilty. You were guilty deserving of condemnation, and now your legal status has changed to acquitted. 
and you walk out of God's courtroom with a new status. But he doesn't just change our status. He changes our nature. Resurrection life starts now. It starts from the inside out. Next, we are enabled to demolish the devil's strongholds, to demolish his strongholds. Now, in the book of Judges, we have seen repeatedly that the enemies of Israel, first the Canaanites, the Midianites, and then the Philistines, have all moved into Israel's territory. And they set up what are called strongholds. That just means in those territories, they get so fortified that it's very difficult to dislodge them. Very difficult to dislodge them. And from these strongholds, Israel's enemies oppressed and introduced idolatry among God's people. And then the judge was called, anointed, and raised up for the purpose of pushing these forces of darkness back out of the land, calling God's people back to faithfulness, back to right worship. But now in the New Testament, you and I have a different fight. It's not against the Philistines. It's not against the Midianites or the Canaanites. Our fight is against the devil, against spiritual forces, the Bible says in Ephesians 6, in heavenly realms. And we wage that war firstly and foremostly by tearing down the strongholds of false beliefs and pretentious arguments. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. He says, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Which strongholds? Well, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so Paul tells us that the spiritual battle is not waged with the same carnal warfare or the same carnal weaponry that we used in the natural sphere. Our weapons are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. They're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. And what are these strongholds? Listen, the world is full of bad ideas. And the world is full of bad arguments. I'm thinking about the demise of the new atheism. You know what the new atheism is? Over the last 20 years, there's been this resurgency of authors like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Chris Hitchens to convince us that there is no God and all religion is evil. And so for 20, 25 years, they've convinced people of this. And now what do we see in our culture? God has been evacuated from our culture, and instead of people walking around as a bunch of happy, well-adjusted atheists who just don't have any belief system at all, just believe in science maybe, instead of that, what we found is people believing the craziest things we've ever seen. Why? Because if you evacuate God in any sense of transcendence from a person's life, they become their own God. They have to fill that vacuum. They are a worshiping being. As Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, we are crowned with a religious nature. You're going to worship something. And so if you take God out of the equation and you, you evict him from every sphere of the human life, we will fill it with something. It's, it's something. it's just that now we're filling it up with the new gods. And the new gods of our world are not Zeus, not Pan, not Jupiter, not Aphrodite, but us. We're the new gods. We say what goes. Our word is the last word on any matter. And if you stop and think about it, we really have replaced 
all those attributes with God with a kind of pseudo-God-likeness, right? We're, we, we think we're omnipotent because technology gives us the power to do things that 50 years ago people just couldn't even imagine. We think we're omniscient because we have these little devices in our pocket and we can fact-check Jeff's sermon right in the middle of his sermon with Google. <laughs> and we think that we're... We're omnipresent now. Listen, I am spatially located right here. <laughs> but I have a Facebook page that could potentially be viewed by 5 billion people at once. And so all of a sudden, we've become the new omnipresent beings. And what the culture has tried to do is make us think that we're God and that our word is the final authority on any matter. And the truth is, we're false gods. All of us are false gods. And Paul says, the weapons of our warfare, they're mighty through God for the pulling down of these strongholds. What's the stronghold? These false ideas. These false teachings. These things that are in the world that are destroying our culture. And Paul tells us that's not where it ends though. It starts with the believer. Listen, if you want to change the world, start with changing yourself. He says, also, these weapons are mighty through God for the pulling down of the stronghold, not only of false arguments in the culture that set themselves up pretentiously against the knowledge of God in Christ. No, it's also mighty. They're also mighty for the pulling down of the stronghold of my thoughts, for me taking captive my thoughts. I drove back to the landfill about 20 minutes after I left. And I found that young man, and I apologized to him profusely. And we were good. We were all just hugging it out. <laughs> but what I had to do when I drove away from that landfill is I had to take my thoughts captive. And I had to ask myself this question, did I look like a good neighbor? No. In my flesh, I didn't look like a good neighbor. In my flesh, I sinned against that guy in my mind for sure. And that was just totally inappropriate. And so what we need to do is we need to take our thoughts captive to the word of God, to Christ's word. Let me ask you today, believer, are you a capable apologist, a defender of the truth? Have you spent enough time studying God's word and studying the arguments and the evidence for the Christian faith so that you can defend your faith? Listen, if, you, if, you, if your answer to that is no, Christ Community Church can help you with this especially this fall. You, if you're new to this church and you just came here this summer, I'm going to tell you this fall, there'll be lots of opportunities for you to grow in your faith, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to plug into those opportunities. Are you a capable apologist and a defender for the Christian faith and the gospel? Have we taken the time to, come biblic to become biblically and theologically literate? So that when the hordes of hell seek to overrun us, we are ready to fight this good fight. Listen, there is no weapon formed against you that could possibly prosper. None. If you're in Christ and you're standing on his word. Conclusion. Samson's story really captures human weakness. It shows us just how good people could be. I mean, here is a guy who just doesn't even know how sinful he is. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, 
He just he has a utilitarian view, a pragmatic view of the Spirit's enabling. The Lord has enabled him to get what he wants out of life. And it's there as a picture, a glaring example of a person who is ruled by their flesh and driven by their flesh. And when we come into the New Testament, we realize God has something else for us. God wants to regenerate our spirits to renew us from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. God wants to empower us and enable to live the Christian life, live according to Jesus' teachings. And God wants us to be enabled, to be empowered, to pull down every stronghold that's in the culture and also going on in our brains, going on in our minds. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, first of all, that the children were so well-behaved. It's a miracle. (laughs) We thank you for them. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the testimonies today that we have heard that are just astonishing. They just bring tears in our eyes, to our eyes, Lord, because here are these children and these teenagers and these adults confessing their faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what you have done for them on the cross and in resurrection. We are so grateful for that, Lord. And if you're here this morning and your heart is pierced by those testimonies or anything in this message, can I encourage you today, this afternoon, will you surrender your soul, surrender your mind to the God who made you, to the only wise God, the only wise God who has the power to transform your life from the inside out by the power of His grace. Will you surrender to Him today? Surrender to Him today. And don't wait another day. If you're a believer here this morning and you just need encouragement, you say, I feel like I've got some fights going on in my life right now and I don't feel like I have the ability or that I'm enabled to fight this fight. Will you surrender to the Holy Spirit Understand that the Spirit is the one who is giving you the ability to overcome and the ability to endure in the face of agonizing delays to your prayer requests. Surrender your heart to Him today. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said?